Search the world.
This is what it says, 1 John 4, remember, this is a, a, a passage we teach our kids. It says, dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. What is the principle that we're supposed to have? It, love. It doesn't say they will know you are Christians by your rants. Okay? Doesn't say that in here. Oh, that was a really good post. No. In fact, you may do harm to your ability to share Jesus with a rant if you do not example love. Amen? So if you just got a sniffle, seasonal uh, allergies, people don't know whether or not you've actually been inoculated. I'm not asking you to wear an armband. I'm, we're in a place where I, I trust all of you, okay? I trust you folks. But be mindful of those around who are rightfully concerned. Tim is up here this morning, and God bless him. I'm thankful that he's here. But uh, he's standing here today, by God's grace, is the only person left who could lead music that doesn't have COVID. It blew through our whole team. Came from other places. Didn't they, they, once they had those indicators, they weren't here uh, on Sunday morning. We've done our best to stay by all those rules, keep you guys safe. But I want you to be aware. We're not afraid. We're not concerned. We do love you. And we praise God that we can put that love on display. Amen. Just be mindful of each other. If somebody seems nervous, wearing a mask is an act of love. It is not you giving in to a totalitarian government. Okay? Amen? We'll take a stand when the time is right. But what we're doing right now is we're loving each other so that we can worship without hindrance. Let's do that. All right? Thank you. Amen. Let's all stand up. We're going to praise our God and thank him for his grace.
who breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger, the King of glory, the King above all kings. Sing it out to him. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless with and wonder, the King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you
was grace
praise you. We thank you so much. God, we love you, and we just are amazed. We're amazed by your reminders. Time after time, as we open up your word, God, we see you chasing us. We see you pursuing us, God. Even when we didn't want anything to do with you, even when your word says that we pushed you away, God, you still said, I'm, I'm going to leave the 99 I'm going to leave them for one. I'm going to chase after the one person. And God, that one person is each one of us. God, you pursue us, and we don't deserve that. We don't. We are amazed by your grace. We are amazed by your love. And today as we come back, help us, God, to fix our eyes on the most important thing, and that's you, Jesus. Help us to lift you up and to consider you among, in, in our lives today, asking that question, what would you do? Help us to answer that by your word alone. Thank you, God, so much. I pray that you speak clearly to us now and that we listen as Pastor Justin preaches. Thank you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Awesome is it to be here this morning? Aren't you thankful to be in church? Yeah. Um, I remember one of the times when I was young going out on a boat with my dad, and we used to love to uh, go fishing wherever we could fish. But he took me out deep sea fishing one time that uh, I, I just have um, scars from. And uh, we, we went out on the boat, and uh, as happens to some people. Uh, I got sick while I was out there on the boat, and it's just, uh, it's just moving all over. The boat just um, wasn't kind to me. It didn't stop moving when I felt ill. And I can remember learning something then uh, that was super important. What they tell you when you're seasick, and it's, uh, there's white caps that are all around you, or the boat is just coming and going, and, and I won't describe all of the levels of queasiness, because I don't know where you're at this morning, you know, uh, if you had breakfast or not. Um, but there is a, a moment where you're just, you're in the boat, the waves are coming, you're feeling nauseous, and all you can see is kind of the mess around you. And what they tell you to do uh, is instead of looking at the waves or trying to uh, gauge what is about to happen or try to engage with what's happening in the boat, you get your eyes fixed on a point that's on shore, something that's unmoving, right? Get your, your eyes up off of everything that's around you and onto a fixed point. And there's a practical reason for this. 
just the way that God built our bodies, when your head is focused on something like that, it stops bobbing with all of the other uh, mess that's around you and, and actually it helps you be able to stabilize uh, the noise that's going on in your inner ear. Uh, but also, it gets you to stop looking at fearfully all of the stuff that is around you that is a part of making you nauseous. You see a wave coming, your anticipation actually adds to your anxiety and adds to your sickness. But when you have your eyes focused on a fixed point on shore, you're not looking at what might be coming or what's the next wave or that issue, you're just looking at that fixed point on shore. And what I was doing was looking at a fixed point that was right at the harbor, longing to get back. We're going to do something this morning. We're going to take a look. We're going to get our eyes off of uh, everything that's going on in the book of Acts. But I hope that what we're also going to do in this process is remember that sometimes, instead of looking at all the noise that's around us, what we actually are called to do is get our eyes focused on a fixed point of Jesus Christ. We need to remember his calling, his soon return, and our purpose in a world that is bent and broken. And Acts is meant to be a transition book that gets us into the church age that you and I are experiencing right now. It tells us how we got here, and it does that in a beautiful way. So we're going to do three things this morning. First, we're going to take a look once again at the big picture of the book of Acts. Secondly, I want you to notice an interesting detail in chapter 21 of the book of Acts, something interesting that I believe is part of the transition. And then third, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. So if you don't have... One of these uh, little guys, you can raise your hand and the guys will make sure that uh, they get one of those to you. And we'll uh, do that right at the end as we're getting ready to transition. So three things, big picture, interesting detail, and the Lord's Supper. Acts chapter 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 together. Let's stand as we read this passage. Luke is speaking here and it's intriguing to notice. He says, we... He's actually traveling with Paul for this part. Uh, His storyline has caught up. Um, He is now with Paul recording the adventures. And it says, and after we tore ourselves away from them, a group of disciples, it says that we set uh, sail for Kaz, the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. Finding a ship, crossing over to Phoenicia, we boarded and set sail. And after we sighted Cyprus... Passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria, around Tyre, since the ship was to unload its cargo there. We sought out the disciples, notice that phrase, and we stayed there seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our time had come to an end, we left, continuing our journey, while all of them with their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach to pray, we said farewell to one another and boarded the ship, and they returned home. When we completed our voyage from Tyre, we uh, reached Ptolemaeus, where we were greeted by brothers and sisters, and we stayed there with them for a day. The next day, we left and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, remember him, who was one of the seven And we stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there several days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. 
he came to us and he took Paul's belt and he tied his own feet and hands and says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul replied, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we said no more except the Lord's will be done. Do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. Now, as I said, I think there's something that's going on here other than just an interesting story. I don't think we're just getting a little glimpse of Luke's diary as he's going along with Paul. I think that there's actually something here that is happening that leads us into a bigger part of the transition. But to help us with the big picture, we've been kind of having the folks from the Bible Project help us out. So I want you to get this big picture video from them before we launch into our points. We've been exploring the book of Acts, which was written by a man named Luke as a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. Acts began with Jesus telling his followers to spread the good news about his kingdom. And they would start in Jerusalem, then go out into the neighboring regions, and from there to the ends of the earth. Now, in Jerusalem, their message was received by many and opposed by many, especially by the leaders of the temple. They were scandalized by this new claim that the whole story of Israel had been fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. One of these leaders was a man named Saul of Tarsus, who worked tirelessly to stop the movement. That is, until he met the risen Jesus himself. And this encounter transformed Saul from an enemy of Jesus into a herald of his kingdom. And so for years, he traveled about the Roman Empire using his Roman name, Paul, starting Jesus communities all over. And one of Paul's greatest desires was that all of these diverse communities would see themselves as one unified people, regardless of their differences, Jew or non-Jew, male or female, slave or free. Jesus was creating one unified family of equals living together under his rule. And this brings us to the final section of Acts. Back in Jerusalem, where the movement began, the Jewish followers of Jesus were suffering from a drought and food shortage. And Paul was so passionate about the church's unity that he began a major fundraising project among the diverse churches he had started. They would pool their money together so he and a group of representatives could take it as a relief gift to Jerusalem. But it's not safe for Paul in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders there dislike him so much They want him dead. And Paul knew he was walking into a trap. His friends all begged him not to go, but no one could stop him. And why would Paul risk his life to bring this gift? Couldn't he have sent someone else? Well, for Paul, this was personal. Jerusalem was where he used to participate in the murder of Jesus' followers. And now he gets to serve them. It's also where Jesus himself was executed. And so for Paul, it would be an honor to suffer there alongside his king. Paul goes to Jerusalem, and as expected, he's found by his enemies. A mob forms, and they try to kill him. But Roman soldiers save his life by taking him into custody. The Jewish leaders are accusing Paul of starting a revolt against Rome, but they can't prove it. And the Romans don't know what to do with him. Yeah, they can see Paul's not a criminal, but his claim that a crucified Jewish man is the risen king of the world, it keeps getting him into trouble. And so Paul gets transferred from one court to another until... 
He demands that his case be tried before the court of Caesar in Rome. And so they happily ship him off. Now, throughout this section of Acts, Luke, the writer of the story, has portrayed Paul's trials and imprisonments so that they resemble his previous stories of Jesus' trials and imprisonment. Luke's making an important point. When the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their stories will begin to look like his story, which is beautiful, but it also comes with a cost. On the way to Rome, the boat carrying Paul is hit by a violent storm, and everyone freaks out. Except for Paul. He's below deck hosting a meal, just like Jesus did the night before his trial. Paul blesses and then breaks the bread, promising that God is with them through this storm. And the next day, the ship hits and then breaks apart on the rocks, but everyone's washed safely ashore. Which is amazing, but Paul's not out of trouble. He's taken to Rome and put under house arrest. But it's not so bad. In his house, he can host groups of Jews and non-Jews, sharing with them the good news about Jesus, the risen king. This is a bold move in Rome, the center of power where Caesar rules the world as king. Yes, you have Jesus's alternative upside-down kingdom now growing in the very heart of the world's most powerful empire, all through the suffering of a prisoner. And with this contrast between kingdoms, Luke ends his story. That's a great image, but the story's supposed to be about this message spreading to the ends of the earth. So shouldn't it continue? Of course. Luke has left the story open-ended on purpose so that his readers would know that the story isn't over and that they can participate in Jesus' kingdom that is still spreading to this day. That's a good summary, isn't it? They make a few points in there that uh, actually are pretty profound, and uh, I hope that we are able to unpack those in these final chapters of the book of Acts. But the place we find ourselves this morning is actually called by some commentators Paul's Gethsemane. Um, here is a moment where he is wrangling with whether or not he should go to Jerusalem and face his ultimate demise. Uh, we're going to look at that over the next uh, few weeks and unpack not only what happens to Paul, uh, but what it means for us today, what principles we should take. But I want us to remember, what we're, we're going to start here with the 30,000-foot level. What has Acts taught us that I believe is all getting summed up in these 14 verses? So these 14 verses uh, actually take us on a little bit of a trip. Um, at the very beginning, they get on a ship. It says that uh, they kept sailing along until they got to Cyprus, right? Does anybody remember what happens at Cyprus? Uh, Cyprus was where Barnabas came from. It was men from Cyprus who went and found Paul so that he could start his ministry. For 12 years, he'd just been off on his own thinking, I was a wretched man. I got saved. I'm thankful I'm going to heaven. I'm going to serve Jesus till I die. But he was really anonymous until some men from Cyprus came and found him and said, Paul, you have great value to the church. So he sails by Cyprus. And I think as he's looking out the ship's window, he sees that little... Uh, area there, maybe even where Barnabas went back to reside, and he's having flashbacks, memories of those first missionary journeys. Then it says that he comes to the house of Philip, one of the seven. Why is that important? Because I think all the rest of them are dead. It was the persecution of one of the seven that Paul was at when he killed Stephen. That was that initial man of the seven that was killed. Uh, Stephen, an evangelist, 
uh, but a, a man of God, a deacon in the church that was just serving God, ends up being killed, and that was the beginning of the persecution that drove all the rest of the people out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. Philip was one of those people driven out of Jerusalem by that persecution that was started by Paul. And now Paul is going back into Jerusalem and God allows him to stay at Philip's house. How crazy is that? So that's in this passage. What kind of emotions are going through Paul as he looks at these four daughters who quite possibly would not have been born had Paul been successful in killing off all of the seven? He sees these people, he sees this family, he's blessed by them on his way into Jerusalem. You do whatever God's called you to do, and he keeps moving forward. But each step that we find, Agabus, the man that finally meets him, was the one when Paul was first given a commission not to preach, but his very first commission was to go as a relief provider. He actually went to take care of those that were in deep need, and Agabus's prophecy in Acts chapter 11 was the thing that sent Paul on that needful journey. So the man who met him and gave him purpose and said, you go and you're gonna be a benefit to the church. Serve them first before you preach to them. That guy is the guy that he runs into. What is the first point? The thing that we see at the very beginning here is that in the book of Acts, we see a movement from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. It says at the very beginning, that famous line, and you will be my witnesses. This is what Jesus is saying. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's an amazing thing. Well, they start, they, they fall in love with Jesus. They're on fire for God. 3,000 are saved in one day. Thousands more are being added. The church is growing in number, but they're not leaving Jerusalem. So what does God do? He allows a persecution to come. In that persecution, in Acts 8.1, it says that a great persecution arose after the death of Stephen. And what ends up happening? The very next moment it says, and all of them were driven to Judea and Samaria. It's in Acts 8.1. Then, finally, we see them going to Ephesus, and now Paul is going to Rome. That is the gateway to the uttermost parts of the earth and the headquarters of the uttermost parts of the earth. In both places, the book fulfills what it says it was intending to do. Uh, we see a movement from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the earth. But the second thing that we see in these 14 verses that are part of the big picture in Acts uh, is that in Acts we see a movement of the Spirit of God from a place to a person. Now get this. In the book of Matthew, it actually says that when Jesus Christ died, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. Now it was a veil that was so thick that they said a team of horses going opposite directions hooked up with iron hooks into that would not be able to tear it apart, all right? This is a significantly thick veil. And it wasn't ripped from bottom to top as if man had said, finally it's done. We're declaring that we now have access to God. It's not ripped that way. It's ripped from top to bottom. God is saying you now have access to the Holy of Holies. Why is that significant? At that moment, Jesus Christ died and he paid for everyone that put their faith in him. Isn't that awesome? And the Spirit of God no longer tabernacles or takes up a dwelling place in the temple. He tabernacles among men. Literally the wording of the original language. He dwells in you. He takes up residence from a place to a person. Wherever you go, you take the Spirit of God with you. 
You don't have to go back to Jerusalem to be nearer to his presence. You just have to get to your knees, right? It moves from a place to a person. Um, I listed it out this way. The spirit-led Christian in the book of Acts gets three Fs, okay? Uh, A's are agnosticism, atheism, uh, and all-around foolishness. But Fs are these. You know you're in the family. You are known by your fruit. And you let others know about your faith. That's the three marks of a believer in the book of Acts. You know you're in the family. Remember, even when Jesus was baptized, it says that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. And what was the great announcement? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What's the first thing that Satan attacked when he drives Jesus in, Acts, or in uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1? He drives him out into the wilderness. What's the first thing that Satan says to Jesus, who's God? He says, if you are the Son of God. Why is that important? Because I think that the first place that Satan attacks you is, is you begin to wonder if you're saved. If I'm saved, why am I so tired? If I'm saved, why do I feel like I'm in a desert experience? If I'm saved, why am I having all these miserable problems happening to me? He started there with Jesus. He's going to start there with you. But if you have the Spirit of God, you know that you're in the family. Act, or Romans 8 is just one of many places. Um, Paul talks about it. John talks about it. Peter talks about it. But he says that the Spirit of God in our hearts cries out to the Father, Abba, Father. How does he do that? The Spirit of God dwelling in you lets you know you're saved and you can come to him. That's an awesome thing. You're in the family. But also, you'll be known by your fruit. Just read Galatians 5. Right? Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness. Just really quickly in your mind, write Galatians 5 down. I want you to look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit and ask yourself, has this Spirit been on display? Is this what I'm known for, this list or the one that precedes it? Okay, walk through that. If you're a believer, it's possible that you can dabble on the flesh list, but be under such conviction God brings you back to the fruit list. He wants you to bear fruit. How do you bear fruit? You just allow the Spirit of God to dwell in you. And finally, you let others know about your faith. Every single time we see a supernatural moment in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God descends. What does it say? And others were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their own language through them. Or they had courage to preach the gospel again in that place. Or they were proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to everyone around them. The sign that the Spirit of God was on the, the individual was not miracles, not every time. But it always was a proclamation of the gospel. Always. I've shared this illustration with you a couple of times, but I think it is really useful here. When we talk about the Spirit of God, I have two separate balloons here, right? Can you tell the difference? One of them, this is a Spirit-filled Christian right here, all right? And this is someone who's putting on a happy face. What is the difference? Well, one just naturally elevates. You know, there's nothing that I have to do. In fact, if I accidentally cut this string, this one would just head its way right straight to heaven. It would just keep working its way straight up. What do I have to do with this one to get it to elevate? Well, I can get it to elevate, but you know what I have to do? I have to smack it. You got to smack it to get it to stay in the same place that this one naturally elevates to, all right? Let me ask you something in this last season, just honestly in your own heart. 
When there are things that you know that you should say or shouldn't say, actions you know you should take or shouldn't take, things that you know you should post or shouldn't post, does it take somebody smacking you for you to elevate and act as if God is love and that the way that you're going to save and impact and, and, and proclaim him is through the gospel and goodness? Do you know that that also is a hard thing to do? Loving people isn't the easy way. You try acting loving in this culture right now, and I'm telling you, you will encounter a stiff headwind, all right? But if you have to be smacked to do the right thing, don't get mad at the messenger. Just take a look right here at what Galatians 5 says. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, that naturally will lift you up. People are attracted to that, aren't they? I've asked a group of little kids. They all want the helium balloon. <laughs> they want that instead of this one you got to smack around. Third thing that we see in the book of Acts that's important. In the book of Acts, we see a movement from spirit-led apostles who were attested to with miracles to spirit-led disciples that are attested by martyrdom. Here's where we get to the very interesting thing in uh, chapter 21. It says, by the way, so we, we've been going through, uh, he finds a ship, he sets sail, he goes around Cyprus, but he lands at a place and he says, we sought out the disciples, which is a good thing to do wherever you go. It says that we sought out the disciples and we stayed there seven days, and through the Spirit, get that phrasing. Now, it doesn't say that we sought out prophets, it doesn't say that we sought out certain supernatural gifts, it was just the disciples, it was just the church, and the Spirit of God was stirring them up, and it says, and through the Spirit, they told Paul, the original language construction here is, they were constantly saying it every time they were in his presence. Paul, 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 Paul. It would have been like seagulls near a fish. They're just screaming out this statement to him over and over again, heartbroken, aching for him not to go to Jerusalem. Please listen to me. They told him not to go to Jerusalem, and when our time had come to an end, we left to continue our journey. This is an intriguing question. Were they right? Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's another interesting thing, verse 9 it says that he comes to the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. And this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. They were prophets. So they actually had at one point had the spirit of God come on them and they were able to reveal things that were about to happen. So the disciples, not identified as having a supernatural gift, just a bunch of believers, the spirit of God begins to say through them to Paul, you're gonna encounter hardship in Jerusalem. He goes to the house of a prophet and they say nothing. What's happening here? I think this chapter is helping us with a big picture transition. Verse 10 seals the deal, and it says, And after we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus, somebody who Paul knew, that the church knew, he had been accurate before, comes down from Judea, and he took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And by the way, in the next few moments. We don't even get out of the chapter before that begins to be fulfilled. It happened. Agabus comes in and he says the disciples were right. What's happening in here? There's a couple of things. First of all, it's supernatural warning 
Can you imagine the agony? How hard was it for Paul to sleep at night? Well, if he's trusting the Spirit of God like Peter was when he was in the jail, he might have slept well, but everyone around him was a wreck. You're about to be bound, killed. You're about to go through hardship. Paul says, I know. By the way, believers face hardship, misunderstanding, and trial. If you are a believer and you've never faced a trial, you need to check whether or not you're in the faith. That's what Scripture says. You never felt hardship? You've never had uh, any battles because of... Your belief? Paul is about to experience this hardship and he's going into this moment and it is hard for him. But in this moment, something else is also happening. I think there's a transition where miracles are moving from the apostles and settling into the church. I believe that God still moves, heals, and reveals today just not in the same way that he did through the apostles. That's an important distinction. I don't believe that you have people that have the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy the same way that they did in the time of the apostles. But I have watched God move through his people, them to say, this is what way we're going to go, or this is what we're going to do, or they have prayed, and people have been rid of sickness. Do you know that? I believe that I'm sitting here today because of the prayers of saints. I believe that. I talked to my doctor this week. My doctors believe that. So thank you. (laughs) And also notice it's not in the same way. Why? Because God knows that if we had one individual with a gift, we'd worship them. But when God says, I want to put this in here, you pray and look to me. And as a good father, I'll do that when it's appropriate. You look to me. We see a transition. Not anymore attested by miracles, but attested by martyrdom. One of the questions that our brothers and sisters in India and some of the places around have for the American church is, are you willing to die for your faith? In Jordan, they won't allow you into the church until you've proved that you're willing to die for your faith. Final thing we see in the book of Acts that's in this chapter. In the book of Acts, we see a movement from anticipating the revelation of the Messiah to anticipation of the revelation of the kingdom. They did not know who the Messiah would be. In the four Gospels, we find out that it's Jesus. Jesus puts on display, now that you're going to go and preach about me, you can tell them definitively, you've met the Messiah, you know who he is, but now you're anticipating the kingdom. But we have a similar problem in our day and age that they did while they were waiting for the Messiah. And that is, we have so many shades of doctrine that come in uh, and talk to us about what is the kingdom and what will it look like and whether or not it will even come and exist. We have all of these different stands people have taken. And as they're reading scripture, uh, the people that are coming in and shouting their positions have created some confusion and have muddied the waters. We know who Jesus is, and the declaration of Scripture is he is coming again. Amen? He's coming again. But sometimes we put so many different lenses on that we actually don't see the truth. I actually read an article to you a short while ago. I won't go into the details because they're a little gory for some of you that wear contacts. But there actually was a woman in the U.K. who was having trouble with her vision. And when they went in and they looked at her eyes, they found 27 lenses in her eye. She just kept putting contacts in thinking that they had fallen out when she slept. 
It turns out she didn't see better the more contact lenses she had in her eyes. It didn't help. Sometimes we can get so focused on Bible studies, hearing from other people, that we're not actually listening to what the Word of God says. We need one tractor beam in our life, folks. We need to be about looking at the Lord through the lens of Scripture. Look at what he said. Read it in his word, not a secondary opinion. A couple of application points, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. In this passage, we see something that I think we need to have uh, on full display in this season in our life. In verse 5, 12, and 13, we see that believers can disagree in their conclusions, yet be guided by the same spirit. Okay? It says, when our time had come to an end, we left and continued our journey. While all of them with their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, they kneeled down on the beach to pray. We said farewell to one another. Paul, please don't go to Jerusalem. I'm going. In uh, verse 12, it says, when we heard this from Agabus, both we and the local people pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. They heard what the Spirit of God said and they concluded it's not God's will for you to go. Verse 13, but Paul replied, what are you doing? Even weeping and breaking my heart for I'm ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem. Now remember just one chapter earlier, he in his final address tells a bunch of believers, Ephesian elders, he says, I know that I'm going to be bound. I know that I'm going to die. And everywhere I go, the Spirit reminds me it's going to be brutal. But I take each step, my next step, knowing that God has called me to do this next thing. I'm trusting him. Two different conclusions. Paul, don't go. Paul's committed that he must go. But they end up falling on their knees in faith, side by side, saying, Lord God, your will be done. That's where believers should end. Amen? The question when you have a disagreement with a believer should be this. Where did we end? Does it end in fellowship or a faction? Just think through that. In this last season, good believers have come to different conclusions about the same concerns. Is it that one's not godly? Some have concluded that. Is that the conclusion here? Were spirit-filled believers ungodly? Was a spirit-filled Paul completely wrong? Or was God in control of both so that he might get the glory in the story? Good people have come to different conclusions. And the real question is, can you still get down on your knees next to them in fellowship and say, Lord God, your will be done. And look at them with gracious eyes saying, we look at the same scripture, we love the same Lord, let it be. If it doesn't result in fellowship, if it results in a faction, scripture says you're bent towards your own desire. But if two spirit-led believers come to different conclusions, we get on our knees and say, Lord, will you help us decide? Fellowship, that's a good application. Secondly, we see in this passage that God will find a way to get his will done his way. Paul ends up going to this conclusion, and he does get bound hand and foot. He does get taken away, but he ultimately ends up in Rome preaching the gospel. He lives through the experience. This is a profound moment of faith for Paul. 
There's all kinds of discussions about how he got there and whether or not he should have gone and all of those things. But here's one thing that I know. When we commit ourselves to God's way, we can't take a misstep. Do you hear that? You, if you are committed to reading scripture and putting your whole case in God's hands, God will help steer the boat. So whether he goes or whether he stays, God still gets the glory in the conclusion. God would have been able to steer him right to Jerusalem and into Rome if he would have stayed with the brethren by the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God that much? What we see in this place is that God will find a way to get his will done, and he'll do it his way. He just asks for us to yield. That's a great thing, isn't it? And a final application. Spirit-led faith will compel you to participate. Spirit-led faith will compel you to participate all the way through Scripture. When they were moved by the Spirit of God, they joined in. What is happening with the disciples? They wouldn't let Paul go. Please let us be a part of this. They follow him down to the beach. They fall on their knees. They're hanging on to him at the end. They're blessing him as he goes. Other people are coming down to join the effort. But Paul is also compelled Whatever I do next, I want to do for the glory of God. And he is compelled to participate in the kingdom. There is this pulse that is going through the book of Acts that is intended to be handed off to you and I. And that is, if you really have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if he's actually come in and transformed your heart, if there's any difference in you at all, it will go through you and impact the world around. You will be compelled to participate. Now, in the American church, we have done a poor job in certain areas. We're excited when somebody participates, but as a rule, we do sit, soak, and sour. What God says is, look at these men, not superheroes, but transformed by their faith to get on their knees and just go and let God get the glory from the results. You'll be compelled to participate. Equal motivation, different in ministration, different in your calling, different in what you do. Some will be behind the scenes, some will be up front, but all of you will be involved. There's a story told about the Queen Mary. It was a ship that was actually a, a pretty profound cruise ship of its day, the line drawing of it. Um, it, it was a magnificent thing that was uh, built for the elite to be able to travel in leisure and be able to experience uh, Europe and some of the, the parts of the, that it could reach in the Mediterranean. When it, came, it comes to World War, though, it got re-outfitted for uh, all of the army, and, and uh, they actually took out all of those staterooms and uh, in a room and a suite that used to just house two people. They would put as many as 21 sailors in there. They have pictures, if you go on and look online, uh, of them filling up the Great Hall and some of these other places uh, with dining facilities and, and uh, places to be able to take care of those who had been uh, wounded in battle, and it became a transport ship. If you uh, go now, there's actually a, a place where you can see it, sometimes San Diego, sometimes uh, in other places up along the coast in California. But the Queen Mary, up against some of our cruise ships today, it looks like a tiny little boat. But it was magnificent, and you can go on it now. It's actually a floating museum. And there was a placard that was in there for a period of time when you actually would first come onto the boat, and it said, the Queen Mary, the greatest ship ever to go to sea. That was the original statement. And it then says, has now become the greatest ship to come and see. That's a transition. From the greatest ship to go to sea to the greatest ship to come and see. 
It stays in dock. It doesn't actually go out. Lloyd Ogilvy, commenting on this, said uh, he was down at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, a church that had done an amazing job of sharing the gospel, impacting the community, and having these just great stories come out of their place. Said, right after going to see the Queen Mary, he had a visitor come to the church. And as she was walking around, he says, ma'am, can I help you get involved? Can I help you with anything? And she said, no, I'm just here as a visitor. And then she said these words. She said, I just wanted to see the church where so many great things used to happen. The book of Acts is telling us about a church that is on fire. And they're not on fire because of the program. It doesn't actually hand you five different bullet points. It's on fire because they allowed the Spirit of God to motivate them to go and do the will of God. And as soon as that stops... As soon as that stops, it goes from a church that is on the move and giving God the glory to a church that has used-to-be stories. The real question is, what will happen here? Nobody can live your spiritual life for you. But there is great glory for a church where all of the people say, Lord, as for me and my house, as for my own heart, you're going to rule here. And we give you control. There is a world right outside right now, as soon as we go out of these doors, that is confused and fearful, and they have no idea. Should I come? Should I go? Should I wear a mask? Should I not? Is it safe for me to go in public? Is it safe for me to be alive? There are so many people. In fact, there are probably some of you here today, if statistics hold, because each week we've had visitors come in that are just spiritually curious, saying, I don't have any answers. I'm depressed and overwhelmed. I'm telling you there is an answer in Jesus. It's there. Believers, will you live and engage with your eyes up in a world that is hurting and fearful and allow God once again to stir that fire so that you're going out to reach the lost and help the hurting rather than be self-serving? That's the question. It's the difference between a church on fire and just an empty coal bed. It used to be there. And it's with that thought, I know I'm driving it deep, okay? that I want us to get ready for the Lord's Supper. We have a moment right now. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 that in order to take the Lord's Supper, it says let a man examine himself to see um, whether or not he is participating in a right manner. If you don't have one of these, if you forgot to get one on the way in, just raise your hand real quick and the men will get one of those to you. Just keep it raised and uh, they'll, they'll bring that to you. I just want you to familiarize yourself with this, and then I'm actually going to pray, um, and I'm going to have Tim just join me on the stage for that moment. But um, we have here a cup. On one side is the bread, and the other side is the juice. Uh, we'll open the bread side first. Uh, there's a process. These elements don't save you. They don't add to your faith, but it is an opportunity right now for us to take spiritual reflection. This is a reminder of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. In order for you to be family, in order for you to bear fruit, in order for you to put him on display, it says that this had to happen first. And he invited us. He says, do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. He is reminding us until he comes again that we are to be mindful that he is the one that should be running everything. We are looking for his soon return. Not a kingdom we establish, not anything that we do. It is for Jesus. And he says, put yourself underneath 
my authority. This is a reminder that it's not about you. It's about a Savior who died on your behalf. Now, it's possible that you're sitting here this morning and you're actually working through some stuff. If the Spirit of God has laid those things on your heart, you alone know if you have to go from here and take care of that. But what we do is we bow our heads and we just say before God, Lord, will you please forgive me, first of all, for those actions that you're stirring inside of me. Help me not to blame somebody else. Help me to take ownership. Please forgive me for those things. And, and 1 John tells us the moment that you confess those, they're forgiven. Amen? But if there's something that you need to go and take care of, commit that you'll do that this afternoon. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and make ourselves ready to participate in the Lord's table. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for the call that you give us in the book of Acts and all the way through Scripture to be folks that are focused on you, filled with faith, with fruit, and knowing that we're in the family. We thank you for moments like this, but we do ask right now that you would cleanse us. Father, in this world, uh, the indication in Ephesians 4 is that uh, we don't even have to be actively pursuing sin. Just walking around in this world is going to leave a little dirt on our clothes. So I pray that you would help us. Father, help us to be aware of those areas right now where there are attitudes or positions or decisions, postures that we've taken that are actually sin that will get in the way of our relationship with you. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us. Help us as a people to yield to you. Help us as individuals to see sin as sin and to let it go. And Father, now we pray that you would help us as we participate in these elements to do this with recognition. You alone are Savior, and we submit to you. Help us to do this joyfully, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to open the bread first. And the passage that we read is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Flip that over and open the other side carefully. The scripture goes on and says this. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The scripture declares... For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to do this. We thank you uh, that believers all around the world participate in these elements. They remind each other that you alone are God. 
They remind each other of your death, burial, and resurrection. It's not just a past event, but it has current implications. You are transforming us and giving us joy and giving us a place, a, a calling to make an impact in a broken world. But also, Father, it doesn't end here. You have created an eternity where we will be with you. Father, through your removal of our sin, we can have a relationship with you that never ends. We praise you for that, and we ask that you would help us to live in such a way that we put you on display. We give you glory, and we celebrate it. We pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's conclude our time here this morning singing once again to our God. So let's all stand up and sing to him. I cast my mind to Calvary when Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed body bound and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all of
I believe. 